So now let's talk about um, the beta-1 adrenergic receptor antagonist, also known as beta-blockers. Um, so this class of agent is also um, widely used as anti-hypertensive um, agent. And these are more effective in young Caucasian uh, patients. And they're effective in 50% uh, of the patient. How do they work? So as the name indicated, they are beta-1 or beta in general, um, adrenergic antagonists. So the adrenergic system, so the, for example, norepinephrine, which, which is um, the catecholamine that is involved in the adrenergic system, can bind to different receptors. You have the beta receptor and the alpha receptor. The beta-1 receptor, they are located on the heart. And so if you block them, you are actually um, going to block the action of norepinephrine. And so norepinephrine is also associated with the fight or flight um, phenomenon. So you know if you're in a stress condition or an adverse condition, what happened? Your heart rate increase. Uh, you have your blood pressure that increase. So if you block that effect, you have the opposite. So you have vasodilation, you have reduction of the heart rate. And so that's how I can monitor um, the blood pressure. And those um, beta blockers, you have some that are cardioselective. That means they are only or mainly going to uh, act on the beta-1 receptor that are on the heart. And the non-selective one can bind to the beta-1 receptor, but also to the beta-2 receptors. And the beta-2 receptors, they are located on the lung, and they are involved in the bronchoconstriction. So um, they can induce actually bronchospasm. So non-cardioselective beta blockers, they are not really uh, recommended in patients with asthma because they can cause bronchoconstriction. Um, and then you have some that also has an alpha uh, effect. So they can also antagonize the alpha receptors. And those alpha receptors, they are localized on the arteries. And if you block them, uh, you're going to have a vasodilation as well. Um, so if, um, because they bind to those beta-1 receptors that are on the heart, you have that negative chronotropic effect, so that means reduce the heart rate, and also the inotropic uh, cardiac effect, so reduce the force of contraction. So in general, they're going to reduce the cardiac output. And because the cardiac outputs are involved in the regulation of the arterial pressure, they are going to reduce um, the blood pressure. The ones that are acting on the alpha receptor, which are on the periphery, they can also reduce the peripheral resistance. And those um, beta blockers are also involved in the renin release. They reduce uh, the renin release, and so they are going to reduce the blood volume as well. This is the mechanism of action of the beta blockers in uh, the treatment of hypertension. When you'll see them for the treatment of arrhythmia, Dr. Chef will explain the mechanism of action, which is slightly different, which is more focused on the rhythm. Um, so all those different beta blockers, as I said, they are different in terms of their pharmacologic properties. So some are, as I said, they are non-selective, so they can bind to all those 
beta receptors, beta 1, beta 2, and these are the first uh, beta blockers, such as propranolol, which was the prototype. So propranolol was the first one um, that was uh, identified as a beta blocker, but is not selective. Now you have the newer one uh, that are um, relatively cartridge selective, that means that bind essentially to the beta 1 receptors, and that's, for example, uh, atenolol. Now those cartridge selectivity, it's only um, through at low dose. If you increase the dose, you can lose the cartridge selectivity. Um, and then you have some that has what is called an intrinsic sympathomimetic activity. Do you remember last quarter about antagonist and agonist, that an agonist has an intrinsic activity? So those uh, beta blockers with an intrinsic activity, they are actually also known as partial agonists because they block, they can antagonize the um, beta receptors, but because they have some intrinsic activity, they act like an agonist. So the advantage, they can actually reduce um, the risk of AV block because they have also that intrinsic activity. Um, and then they can also prevent the bronchoconstriction because they are going to go and bind the beta-2 receptors and act as an agonist. So if they are a beta-mimetic on the lung because of their intrinsic activity, they are going to induce a bronchodilation. And when you talk about respiratory drug, you will see that Ventolin, for example, uh, is actually a beta-2 mimetic. So beta-1 adrenergic <coughs> blockers are used for cardiovascular disease, but beta-2 mimetic because the effect of norepinephrine on those beta-2 uh, receptors is to induce bronchodilation. So an agonist is going to induce bronchodilation. An antagonist, so the ones that are non-selective and don't have any intrinsic activity, they block those beta-2 receptors and they, 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 they can induce uh, bronchoconstriction and induce a bronchospasm. So that's why uh, non-selective uh, beta-2 receptors are not uh, indicated in patients with asthma or COPD. Now this is a summary. Um, so just, you have to remember a few of them, we're not asking you to know all of them, but you have to know like the prototype, of course it's propanol, which is a non-selective, bind both beta-1, beta-2. Then you have the selective one, atenolol, metoprolol, so toprol, which is a more cardio-selective. Um, and then you have the one that are partial agonists, as I said, that has some intrinsic activity. That's the case of uh, sectral. And then you have the one that has some alpha uh, activity, and this is uh, carvedilol. So when you have that mixed activity, the alpha and the beta blockers, um, there is uh, studies that show that carvedilol <coughs> can reduce the mortality uh, of patients with uh, systolic heart failure that are also treated with um, diuretic and ACE inhibitor. Uh, and then this additional alpha blockade uh, can produce more um, orthostatic hypotension because as I said, those alpha receptors, they are located on the arteries. And so if you induce more vasodilation, you're going to stimulate the baroreceptors and you're going to have uh, that orthostatic um, hypotension. 
So everything that acts on the vessel, you have more a risk of having that um, orthostatic hypotension. This is another table showing, so you see some has uh, selectivity, some are not. So uh, for example, as I said, so propanolol, which is uh, right here, so is non-selective. It has no uh, intrinsic uh, activity. So when you see partial agonists, that means intrinsic activity. So you can look at your table, which one has some uh, intrinsic activity. And again, when you have to select the beta blockers, you have to take into consideration if the patient has asthma or not, if he has any other um, you know, cardiovascular disease, and which one is gonna be the better choice based on this. And you also have like the data for the half-life. Um, so you see propanolol, very short half-life, so that means the dosage is gonna be more frequent and that might not be uh, good for compliance. The one with longer half-life are gonna be a uh, better choice, so seven to 10 hours, uh, it's better if you can just give it once daily rather than two or three times a day. Indication of uh, those beta blockers, so hypertension, they're also used for the treatment of angina pectoris, MI, antiarrhythmic, because they can uh, regulate uh, tachycardia, Migraine, I don't know if you know, if you heard about it, but it can be used for the prevention of migraine. They are not used for treating a migraine episode, but they can be given uh, to patient who has uh, migraine just to prevent a um, new episode. And then some uh, topical uh, preparation can be used, uh, like ophthalmic preparation, also used to uh, reduce the pressure um, intraocular pressure for the treatment of glaucoma. Adverse effects, so you see there is a long list of um, adverse effects. Um, you know, you might not see them, but uh, you have to be aware of those adverse effects because they are acting on the heart rate. You can have AV block, bradycardia, uh, can precipitate or worsen uh, heart failure. As I said, it can induce or exacerbate uh, bronchospasm, uh, especially the non-selective uh, beta blockers. Uh, sexual impairment, so again, as I mentioned for other drugs, it is not known whether it's really the drug or something that is related to hypertension. Some can uh, cross the blood-brain barriers, and so in that case, uh, you can have central nervous system uh, symptom and um, those symptoms vary from depression, fatigue, nightmare, and then some, you know, in the worst case, they can have hallucinations. Um, they are actually hyperglycemic, uh, so uh, this is contraindicated in diabetic patient because of the risk of hyperglycemia. They also increase uh, the plasma uh, triglycerides and um, Cholesterol, these two effect the hyperglycemia and the hypertriglyceridemia. This is transient, so it's something to monitor at the beginning, but it might also not last. Um, propanolol can cause uh, allergies. And then it's important when a patient has to discontinue the beta blockers not to discontinue it abruptly. Because what happens if you block those receptors, uh, the receptor become hypersensitive. So when you block them, once you remove the drug, they are so hypersensitive, then the effect of the catecholamine are gonna be amplified. 
So you want to uh, taper down the dose. You don't want to stop abruptly because then you can have um, the opposite effect and you can have rebound hypertension just because those uh, receptor, you know, were like blocked by those antagonists and now, you know, they're becoming hypersensitive to the effects of uh, the catecholamine. Um, alpha receptor, adrenergic antagonist. So as I said, catecholamine can bind to the beta receptor, but they can also bind to the alpha receptors. And those alpha receptors, they're only located on the arteries. Uh, so this is another class of um, antihypertensive uh, agent. So they block those alpha-1 uh, receptor. They are competitive antagonists. So if you remember the difference between competitive versus non-competitive uh, antagonists, so that means they can bind and then they can also be uh, removed from the receptor. They don't bind permanently to the receptor. So they are going to depress the activity of the sympathetic uh, nervous system. So sympathetic nervous system is associated with norepinephrine or noradrenaline, and then uh, antagonizing the action of norepinephrine on the effector cells. So the effector cells are the vascular smooth muscle cells. Uh, so they promote dilation of the arteries, and so if you promote uh, dilation, then you reduce uh, the blood pressure. And some, uh, some of those agents, they are also used to uh, reduce the prostatic symptoms in men because some are actually selective from, uh, for the prostate smooth muscle receptors. And so Flomax um, is one of those uh, drugs that actually is used for the treatment of BPH. And uh, those uh, alpha receptor antagonists include prasocin, terazosin, so you see they have the same um, ending. And so these are an example. So prasocin was the prototype. And as a rule, all the prototypes are, you know, <coughs> always have more adverse effect or less potent and then pharmaceutical companies develop a you know, better agent. This is just um, to illustrate how those uh, catecholamines uh, are acting on their receptors. So you see here you have the vascular smooth muscle and you have those alpha-1 receptors that are postsynaptic. So when uh, the catecholamines are released in the synaptic cleft, they are going to bind to the alpha-1 receptors and then induce a vasoconstriction. If you block that receptor, you have the opposite effect and you have vasodilation. As you can see here, you have other receptors that are called alpha-2, but they are on the, on the neuron size. And those alpha-2, if the catecholamine binds to it, it has um, like a negative feedback effect. So you have a release of a lot of catecholamine, and when it binds to these alpha-2 receptors, just said, okay, stop, now I have enough here, just stop releasing more. So by binding the alpha-2 receptors like a negative feedback loop, the alpha-1 antagonist only bind to this, so antagonize the effect of the catecholamine on the postsynaptic level, and that means the catecholamine can still bind to this <coughs> side and also, you know, don't, uh, don't regulate more uh, release. So it has a double effect if you stop the release then you also stop the contraction. Um, 
the indication of those um, alpha uh, adrenergic inhibitors, they are used for the treatment of hypertension, of course, and then they're also used for the treatment of uh, BP, uh, BPH. They are not you know, the appropriate uh, drug, uh, not the first line uh, therapy, but that can be some agent that you know, can be used if the patient are not responding to other uh, first line therapy. Now the um, adverse effects, because they act on the vasculature, you are more at um, risk of orthostatic uh, hypotension. And that's why it's recommended to give the first dose at bedtime, because if the patient is lying down, it's less likely to have that orthostatic um, hypotension. And then uh, you can also recommend the patient to move slowly when they have, you know, to go from um, transition from a sitting position to an upright position, because if they do it too quickly, they can have uh, that dizziness and that effect of um, orthostatic hypotension. So again, it's important to educate the patient when they have to take the drug and you know how, what they can do to avoid those uh, side effects with the first dose um, when they start the treatment. Because they induce uh, orthostatic hypotension, they also induce reflex tachycardia just to uh, avoid you know, that abrupt change of blood pressure. Your heart is gonna pump more and that's why you have uh, reflex tachycardia. Uh, they can induce salt and water uh, retention and then, you know, syncope at first dose is related to those um, adverse effects. And so the initial dose um, should be small, and then you want to increase uh, once the patient gets used to the drug, just to avoid those adverse effects. Because some also um, cross the blood-brain barrier, and you know from last quarter, there are some adrenergic receptors in the brain, and so they don't make any distinction between you know, the peripheral receptor and the uh, central receptor, so you can have some anticholinergic effects, such as dry mouth, blurry vision, um, especially with elderly, so that's something you have to know. And then uh, nasal congestion, so you know that the um, decongestant are actually um, alpha-1 um, agonists, so if you give those antagonists, you can have congestion. Now the centrally acting agent, alpha-2, in this case they are agonists, because you remember this slide that I just showed you, I said, okay, alpha two agon uh, the alpha-2 receptors, if you have the catecholamine that bind to it, is actually inhibiting more release. So if you uh, have an agonist here, you're actually gonna induce, you're gonna stop the release of norepinephrine, and if you block the release of epinephrine, you're gonna induce a vasodilation because norepinephrine uh, promote vasoconstriction. So if you in inhibit, it's released just by that negative feedback, you just have less norepinephrine and less uh, constriction. So that's why alpha-1, they are here, they are antagonists, but the alpha-2 are agonists. So when you do your study guide, make the distinction between alpha-1 receptor blockers and then alpha-2 agonists. So selective activation of the alpha-2 receptor, and these are essentially because you know, those, the brain 
the neuron that starts from uh, the central nervous system are the ones that are going to innervate the periphery and the vasculature. So if you block centrally, you can induce vasodilation just by reducing the release of uh, norepinephrine centrally. And then you can reduce the heart rates and the cardiac output. The drugs are methyldopa and clonidine. Um, in terms of education, methyldopa is actually the first line agent for pregnancy induced hypertension or for you know chronic hypertension. Um, also, um, in a pregnant woman, just because of the data, you know, it's, those drugs are known for uh, a long time. These are not the first line therapy in most of the patient, but because in pregnancy you want a drug that doesn't have any uh, teratogenicity, that would be, um, that's why it's the first line agent. Now clonidine is used only in resistant hypertension, so it's not a first choice, and that would be like the drug that you will try if nothing else has worked or as an add-on therapy because it's not the first line of choice, but some patients, they're resistant to uh, you know, the first line agent and you have to give them something. You don't want to leave them with you know, elevated blood pressure. Um, and then they also use um, to relieve severe pain. And when you have the lecture on opioid and heroin addiction, clonidine is actually used uh, to treat the withdrawal symptom in uh, opioid addiction. You have a question? Yeah, so I have a slide after, and so clonidine patches, you know, like the effect, you don't have that peak as you have with the oral. And so that's why actually at the beginning is recommended to give an oral, um, you know, clonidine orally just to wait because it takes two or three days to have, you know, to reach uh, the effective plasma concentration. And I have a slide actually uh, right after. Um, so yeah, the clonidine you will see when you see the, the lecture on opioid that they are used for the, the treatment of those uh, symptoms. And adverse effect, because they are, they are acting centrally, you're gonna have central nervous system um, adverse effect. You also have you know, drive modes, which are the anticholinergic um, effect. And then you can have um, rebound hypertension, and then that's why patients who are on clonidine and has to stop, you want to also uh, taper down the dose just to avoid uh, that rebound hypertension. Um, so the central um, alpha-2 agonists, they are most effective if they are used in combination uh, with the diuretic, and as I said, it's not gonna be the agent of choice as a first-line therapy unless it's a pregnant woman you want to give uh, methyl dopa. And uh, you have to use them in, uh, with caution in elderly patients because of the central nervous system effect. And then here is uh, the transdermal patch. So you place them uh, weekly, but as I said, it takes the time to get you know, the, the effective plasma concentration. So uh, you want to overlap with an oral uh, formulation when you initiate the treatment or when you discontinue you know, to avoid that abrupt um, uh, decrease of the, the plasma concentration. And yeah, the delay onset with the patch is like two or three days, so that's why you want to combine them with um, an oral formulation. 
Now, another class of drug, the adrenergic neuron blocking agent. So these are also acting centrally. So you have your neuron, and the neuron are the ones that are going to release your catecholamine and that are going to release uh, norepinephrine. And those um, adrenergic neuron blockers, they are just involved in the uptake of those uh, catecholamine inside the vesicle. And so the vesicles are the ones that release the catecholamine when you have uh, depolarization. So if you block you know, the reuptake into the, the vesicle. That means when you have uh, the vesicle that release, when there is a signal, if you have less catecholamine inside, you're gonna have a weaker signal. And um, so that's what it says here, act presynaptically, cause the depletion of norepinephrine uh, from the post-ganglionic uh, sympathetic uh, neuron. And so they are going to reduce the activation of those receptors by norepinephrine. If you have less that is released, you have less activation of the receptor. And if you have less activation, then you have a blockade effect. And because it's, um, it's from uh, the preganglionic, what is released at that level can bind you know, to either the alpha or the beta. So it doesn't make any distinction if you have less uh, norepinephrine that is released you have uh, the inhibition, you have the blockade of both the vasculature and then uh, the, um, the cardiac effect. Adverse effects, they are uncommon at lower dose, but because they act centrally, you're going to you know, reduce also the release of norepinephrine in the brain, and you can have uh, those uh, central nervous system effects. And actually, suicide has occurred with um, those agents. And the most uh, commonly known is uh, reserpine. But again, it's not, um, it's not a first-line agent, and it's only used for refractory hypertension. And now the last uh, category are the ones that are directly acting on um, the arteries. Right now, we saw you know different classes of drugs that act either on the heart, on the kidney, or uh, even if the alpha one are acting on the arteries, they are acting on the receptors, not directly on on the muscle. And those uh, arterial vasodilators they just an effect, just acting on the on the arterial has little effect on the vein, and so they have a direct action on the muscle. Uh, not, you know, uh, it's not um, mediated through a receptor, it's just directly on the, on the smooth muscle. And uh, these are um, hydrolazine, minoxidil, sodium nitroprusate, which is a derivative of uh, nitric oxide. And uh, you know that nitrates are used for the treatment of uh, angina. And so these are a derivative that just act uh, directly on the smooth muscle. Again, these are not the first-line treatment. These are for refractory patients. But if some of you, you know, are going to deal with those patients, you have to know all the options. And again, you see this on your uh, 239A with uh, Dr. O'Connell, and she will, you know, give you more detail of how exactly how to prescribe uh, those drugs. Um, now, the adverse effects for those. Um, Drug, they can cause salt and water retention. 
reflex tachycardia, again, because they act directly on uh, the vasculature. They can cause vascular headache because, you know, if you have a potent vasodilation, it can cause vascular uh, headache. Then um, hydrolazine can cause that lupus-like um, syndrome. And then hirsutism, uh, that means, you know, grow of the hair. And actually, minoxidil, there are some preparation, like uh, topical preparation that are used uh, to treat um, alopecia, um, essentially in men. This is the major classes of vasodilators, because we, you know, we talk about different uh, agents. Some don't act on the vasculature, for example, the beta blockers, but all the other, the ACE inhibitor, it's an indirect mechanism just by, you know, uh, blocking um, the renin-angiotensin system, the ARB, the calcium channel blockers, uh, the alpha blockers, and then the one that act directly on the vasculature, these are all um, the vasodilators. Now, <coughs> this is um, the algorithm that was proposed by the GNC7 guideline. You have a patient with high blood pressure, what do you do? So the first thing, of course, is lifestyle modification. And then, you know, that's, the, of course, that can work with prehypertension, but if your patient is already on a stage one or a stage two, they have to respect those lifestyle modification, but you want to give them a drug because you don't want to take the risk of the patient developing an MI or uh, cardiac heart failure or stroke. And so the approach, um, the step approach, most of the patient, you will uh, start with a thiazide diuretic. And then if it's uh, stage one hypertension, so it's thiazide diuretic, or you can have um, you know, other alternative. If it's stage two, then you would give two drugs, a thiazide plus another drug. And then you want to monitor. If it's one drug is not enough, then you want to either increase the dose or you want to switch to another agent. If one drug is still not enough, then you will add on a second drug. And then if it's still not enough, it's always the step. You want either to increase or switch. If the patient is not responding to that agent, then you will switch to another one. And if you need, you can add uh, another agent. So this is the step therapy. So you see, you start with a diuretic or a beta blockers. Depending on the response of your patient, you're gonna either increase the dose or switch to another one or add another one and so on and so on until you, you reach uh, your goal. And this is for the compelling um, indication. So for example, if a patient has a coronary um, artery disease, the beta blockers are the first line uh, therapy. If the patient has diabetes, an ACE inhibitor is gonna be the first line uh, therapy. Post-MI beta blockers, and then you want to add an ACE inhibitor because ACE inhibitor can reduce the risk of a stroke. Um, left ventricular function, you give a diuretic with an ACE inhibitor. I said like the, the treatment is more aggressive, so you want to give something uh, different. And then you can add on uh, different agent depending on the response of uh, your patient. Now, hypertension in pregnancy, um, as I said, 
it depends so if it's a chronic hypertension you know prior to pregnancy or if it's uh, gestational uh, hypertension you have to distinguish between um, gestational uh, hypertension from preeclampsia the treatment is different um, methyldopa it's one of the drug of choice for the chronic hypertension so if a woman uh, has hypertension and become pregnant and was on, on an ACE, as I said, you want to discontinue the ACE and you want to give her uh, methyldopa. Now, if a patient is presenting with preeclampsia, which is not only uh, high blood pressure, but also has uh, protein urea, in that case, it's a different approach. Of course, you know that uh, she has to uh, restrict the activity, be bed rest, and then it depends also when it occurs in the pregnancy. If it's close to germ, um, ultimately it's you know to induce labor because you, you don't want uh, the patient to go from preeclampsia to eclampsia. So really in that case, if it's close to germ, you want to induce the labor and you would give um, an IV um, hydralazine and you can also give um, magnesium sulfate just to prevent the seizure. And you know, if it's um, if it's you know too far from uh, term, then you can you know try to treat her with uh, hydralazine. But this is you know something um, that you will see in uh, acute setting and not in you know family practice. So. And these are the classes of drug that can be used during pregnancy. So methyldopa, if it's a pre-existing pre condition, you want to give uh, methyldopa. Uh, beta blockers are also generally safe because of the data. And of course, you never do a clinical trial on pregnant women. This is just based on what women were taking if they had to take it for hypertension. Um, and then, of course, as I said, the ACE inhibitors are totally uh, contraindicated. Uh, they are uh, categorized C in the first uh, trimester and then D in the second uh, and third. And um, major teratogenicity has been reported. Now, this is another emergency situation, so hypertensive crisis. So if the blood pressure is higher than 180 over 120, uh, in that case, um, you know, you want uh, to treat... Um, you know, like as I said, you can give the manitol. It's something that you will treat uh, in an emergency setting, and you it, it might be due to other uh, you know organ uh, damage such as uh, encephalopathy, intracranial uh, hemorrhage, and this is uh, the drug that can be used for the treatment of um, hypertensive uh, crisis. And as you see, it's not the common agent that I just talked about. So I have the slide here just, you know, because some of you might be working in, you know, ER or you might want to have them. But, and then this is the table with um, like first line uh, agent for the treatment of hypertension. You have the dose, you have the brand name. On this slide, I couldn't find an electronic version, so I had to scan it. But you have it in your uh, in your packet, and it's it looks nicer than on the slide. Uh, so you can see the dose and then the frequency. 
and then the alternative um, agent. And then something you're probably also interested in is like the generic, are the generic as effective as the brand name? And so there was a study in um, JAMA uh, that was done in 2008, so pretty recent, where they did a review of uh, 47 articles. And among those 47 articles, 38 were randomized clinical trials, so really a well-controlled trial. And they look at different um, agents that are used for the treatment of cardiovascular disease. Here I only list, um, I've only listed the ones that are used for treatment of hypertension, but they also looked at anti-aggregant and anticoagulant. So there is like a full list, and not only those. But the conclusion is that um, they observe a clinical equivalency. Uh, in all the studies that were looking at beta blockers, 91% uh, percent of the studies that were looking at diuretic, uh, 71 of the calcium channel blockers, and then there was only one studies on um, ACE inhibitors, but this you know, data really indicate that there is uh, no difference and no uh, superiority from the brand name versus uh, the generic name. However, when um, the editors of those journals were writing an editorial, 53% uh, were like counseling against the use of uh, generic, you know, probably some lobbying with the pharmaceutical company and so on. <laughs> but if you look at, you know, like the evidence-based practice, clearly there is no uh, superiority from the brand name versus um, the generic name. But of course there is always, you know, like people who try to favor the brand. And so this is, you know, like the goal, again, it's another slide that just summarizes the step that you have to take. And for example, ACE inhibitor um, are better for patient with diabetes or a patient with cardiac heart failure, it's an ACE plus a diuretic, beta blockers for patient who has an MI, um, ACE inhibitor also recommended for post-MI patient with less, uh, less ventricular uh, dysfunction. And then diuretic or calcium channel blockers uh, in elderly patient. This is based on the ethnicity, which one are preferred, if it's a Caucasian, African-American, uh, if it's a young or elderly. Um, this is, you know, to um, make sure that your, your patient is going to be compliant because, as I said, it's a long-term uh, treatment, so it's very important to educate the patient and make sure they are um, adhering to the treatment, so you have to be supportive, you know, um, make sure that if there is, like, the first dose uh, hypotension, that they know that this effect is not going to last and then they stick to the treatment. Um, educate the patient and the family about the disease, the risk versus the benefits. So if they are under uh, antihypertensive agent, they're gonna reduce the risk of uh, comorbidity. Um, maintain the communication of the patient. You know, if they notice any adverse effect, what you can do to reduce that adverse effect. Uh, as I said with um, the potassium, uh, the agent that can uh, induce hypokalemia. So I said you can, you know, um, 
consult them to eat uh, food that are rich in potassium, uh, drug that induce orthostatic hypotension, recommend them to take it at night, diuretic, you know, it's better in the morning. So it's really important uh, to talk to them. Keep inexpensive and simple. That's, you know, it's easy to say, but that's not really like the case sometimes, you know, if they are, uh, if the hypertension is not monitored uh, with one agent, then it becomes more and more uh, expensive and complicated. Favor once daily because, you know, if it's once daily, the patient is more likely to be compliant than if he has to take it um, more often. So the long-acting formulation are a better choice. And then use combination tablets. You know, there are some combination between ACE and diuretics, so then they only have one pill with two um, drugs in it. Then in terms of follow-up, so, um, you know, if patients don't have high blood pressure, you want to monitor anyway. Um, every two years, see, you know, if, if they are well, uh, if they are under control. Pre-hypertension, rechecked every year, and then stage one uh, hypertension confirmed uh, within two months. Um, provide advice about lifetime modification. But I think that's applied to everybody. Even if you have a normal blood pressure, you want you still want to, you know, consult and advise the patient to exercise, eat healthy, and um, have an appropriate diet. <coughs> and then stage two hypertension. Uh, you know, these are all the guidelines and um, advice. And do you have any question? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Yeah, because if you are the you know primary care physician, if they had stage two hypertension, they were seen by a cardiologist, and then you just follow them, you know, follow up with them. But then you want to make sure that you know they go routinely to see their cardiologist. Yeah.